You're listening to Look at My Records. This is episode 223, and I'm your host, Tom Gallo. This episode of Look at My Records features an interview with Michael Grace Jr. of Long Island indie pop legends, My Favorite. After a long stretch of years since their last release, the project returned in the fall with the first in a trio of EPs, Tender is the Night Shift Part 1. The five-song collection is the first My Favorite extended play in nearly two decades and features more beat-driven tracks that draw on nostalgia while contemplating love and loss. During our interview, Michael and I chatted about My Favorite's long history, including what it was like recording early singles with Mark Kramer, the band's rabid fan base in Sweden, how this current revival came to be, and much more. Plus, Michael picked some great records from my collection, including some sick tracks from Lou Reed, Sade, and Prefab Sprout. We'll dive into our interview right after the jump. If you're interested in hearing more episodes of Look at My Records, they're available on all streaming platforms. Please remember to rate, review, like, and subscribe on your platform of choice. I also encourage you to check out the Look at My Records website, where you can find reviews, premieres of new music, playlists, and a whole lot more. Check it out at lookatmyrecords.com. All right. So, hello, Michael. How are you? I am fine. It's good to talk to you today. It's great to speak with you, too. My favorite has a new EP out. It's called Tender in the Night. Tender is the Night Shift Part One. It's the first EP in a trilogy of EPs. The other two will be coming out in the future. Uh, before we get into my favorite in the here and now, I like uh, I like how you use the term "the future." That's vague <laughs> enough to uh, describe when these when these EPs are actually going to get to people. I appreciate that. Thank you. The, the future. future. No, it'll be sometime in the future, people. Yes, sometime in the exactly. future. But before we get to the future and the present, let's talk about the past. This band, this project, sure. is so fascinating to me. It's long history and how integrated it is in the fabric of indie pop and different scenes that were, you know, bubbling beneath the surface in the 1990s. Tell me about your background. You know, you came of age playing music in the late 80s and early 90s on Long Island. What was the scene like out there in the 1980s? And I'm always interested in Long Island specifically because I'm from New Jersey. So there's always these parallels, I feel like, between these two areas outside of New York City. So it's always cool for me to hear that. You know, when I was uh, when I was going through your record collection, I noticed that you had a single by The Bouncing Souls. And The Bouncing Souls were one of the first people that ever championed my favorite before we had ever put wow. a single out. I had just sent these random cassettes to a handful of bands that I liked in like 1992 or something. Um, and, uh, and those guys wrote me this huge letter and brought us to, and we played some shows of them which was asking a lot since you know they were a powerful punk band and we were a shambling new wave band you know um at a time when no one wanted that to begin with so um i think there is a jersey uh 
uh, Long Island uh, spiritual connection. I was also really, absolutely yes. I was also really close to the late uh, Jack Terrycloth from the World in Front wow, of Friendship yeah. Society, and that's something we used to talk about a lot. Also, what do you remember about those Bouncing Souls shows specifically? Before we dive back into, because that sounds interesting. <laughs> I remember. Uh, I remember them. Bringing, I remember them bringing me on stage to duet on "I Know What Boys Like," <laughs> which I thought was a a very radical gesture. Um, you know, in yeah, 1992. Very. You know, we were doing a we were doing a benefit at the People's Aid Coalition in Lindenhurst. I'll never forget this, even though it was so long ago. Um, and I just thought it was such an amazing thing to do. Um, you know, I was still a teenager. I was 19 years old, you know. Um, and I just remember how much energy they had and how um, how much sort of joy and openness they had. You know, and that, that's something that I sort of stopped associating with punk rock after a while. But those guys at that time in particular, you know, they really, they were really, um, really passionate about identity and about who they were and about sort of supporting and protecting people um, that were vulnerable. And uh, I ended up interviewing um, people at the uh, at the People's AIDS Coalition, and it influenced our next single called The Informers, which was basically about the AIDS crisis. And uh, it was really the Bouncing Souls that, that, that got me involved in, in that in that in that cause. And uh, um, they were they were they were great guys. But that was what I remember is that they would they would drag they would drag me on stage, and I was like really not ready for that but they they gave me confidence uh their their sort of belief was um important to me in those early years the fact that a band that i admired thought we were doing something when we had not even released anything but a cassette that we made ourselves that's amazing so now circling back to long island how'd you get involved with the scene how do you you know get exposed to music that was considered more underground kind of outside of what you'd hear on the radio and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I was <clears throat> just a kid in the '80s, you know, and a teenager um, in the end at the end of it. But you know, on Long Island, we had this radio station WLIR, which they made a documentary about a few years back. And along with K Rock in LA, they were one of the few commercial you know radio stations that was dedicated to what they would either call new music or new wave or the next music. You know, they used to change these terms for it every couple of years on the bumper sticker. I remember that. Um, so, you know, growing up with all that music um, accessible on the radio, uh, you know, definitely had an influence on me. And also college radio was, was a big deal on Long Island, WUSB and Stony Brook um, in particular. I think I ended up going to that school just because I love uh, the radio station so much. So I think, I think the idea of coming of age just as all this music was sort of disappearing and fading away. Um, I, I felt a, a kind of a panic about it, you know? And so going into the nineties, I was just kind of holding on to this, uh, idea about this music that in many ways saved me as like a 15 or 16 year old. And then by the time I was starting a band at 1920, um, I wanted to kind of hold on to a piece of it. Um, and so we did, you know, I, as I went along, I began to have a more sort of conceptual idea of what we were doing and have a more meta idea of what we were doing. But in the very beginning, I think it was really just emotional. I didn't want to let go to this music that had helped me find people that would accept me, that wouldn't bully me, um, you know, people that were okay with 
with who I was and who I wasn't. So in the beginning, it was really just emotional and psychological. And then as the group went on, I, I figured out a sort of, you know, praxis and strategy for what we were doing. But in the beginning, it was just not wanting in to In the beginning, go. did you know how to play music? I feel like a common thread among a lot of indie pop bands of that era is just deciding, oh, we want to make music. We don't really know how to, to play guitar. I, I talked to my friend Phil Sutton of Comet Gain, who was in Comet Gain for a while. And, you know, he told me I didn't know how to play the drums or do anything like that, but I just did it anyway. So what was your experience prior to starting the project with playing instruments or doing anything like that? I had uh, I had reams of lyrics and poems and, you know, and I think that's maybe something that's a little different for me as a songwriter is a lot of, a lot of people sort of want to play music and figure out how to play an instrument and then, then figure out how to, how to write words second or just, or on the way to the studio. So I knew that I had words and I had stories um, and I had poems, but I didn't know how to play, how to play any music. Um, So I just got a synthesizer and, you know, and tried to imitate some of the music I was into and, um, yeah, I never had any music lessons. So it's it's sort of funny now because the new EP has a people are saying you're very sophisticated. Yeah. And I, I have learned a few jazz chords over the years, you know, and I and I think as a songwriter I, I have progressed, but I still can't play any any instrument except slowly and deliberately deliberately or two fingers at a time on a synthesizer. No, it's true. I did not know how to play um uh in- music very well at all. Um and I just figured it out as we went along. What what were do you remember your first gigs? What what were they like? Yeah, I do remember them, you know, because you know, we're playing on Long yeah. Island and there's only a hardcore scene for live music and a metal scene, you know? So you had to sort of pick one of the two and I you know, I was into stuff like Minor Threat and Seven Seconds and I felt like closer to yeah. the hardcore kids certainly than I did the metal kids. Um, but it wasn't a very hospitable uh, environment for us. So, you know, if we were lucky, there was also a ska band on the bill. <laughs> so it wasn't just like three bone-crushing bands and then, you know, me hitting like the drum machine on a Casio. But um, so they were they were chaotic. You know, some people thought that we were doing something very exciting and unusual. And a lot of other people thought that we needed to, you know, be escorted out of the venue because, you know, we were not playing hardcore and we weren't playing punk and we weren't playing ska. We weren't playing anything. We were figuring it out as we went along. We liked all those forms of music and, and, and many others, but, um, you know, we didn't fit it neatly into any scene and that would continue for the entire 20 years, you know, eventually I think it became a strength, but in the early days it was just, um, you know, I ended up asking my friend to join the band on rhythm guitar just because he had been like in the air force and I knew he could fight, you know? So <laughs> like we really had to put some muscle in the band, you know, cause it was certainly wasn't going to be me, especially not at that point. So it was, it was, it was wild, but, um, you know, that was in the early days, really, you know, indie pop by the May 93, 94, we had sort of found some, yeah. some allies in indie pop. But in 91, 92, when we were just starting, it was just an absolute wilderness. And there was never really an indie pop scene on Long Island. So if we played locally, you know, we were still playing with 
goth bands one night and maybe you know playing before a, a synth pop disco night so we had to improvise so our shows were pretty unique in those days because um you know there was nothing that we fit into seamlessly so as a result you know i think we made different sorts of fans like we would play at this disco called mesh um that was right by the Fire Island Ferry, and the Fire Island Ferry would go back and forth, and and there it was a oasis for for the gay community. So yeah, we'd play this nightclub, but we'd make a lot of fans out of people that were into dance music, and to different stuff. So, you know, we were always pretty good at, at at sort of creating our own audience, and I think at first it was a real pain, but as it went on, I think it ended up being kind of an asset. What about the band's like original? Formation. What was the story behind how this project really started? I mean, we I, we went to this huge, huge high school um, in, in Ronkonkoma that had like two thousand people, and as a result, many there was a lot of people from that high school that formed bands. Um, Kevin Egan had this hardcore band Beyond that was well known. There was this metal band while I was in high school whose exact members went on to become Nine Days and do that song, This Is a Story oh, of a Girl, or whatever that song was. You know what I mean? They, they, they beat us in the Battle of the Bands as a metal band. You know, in 11th grade, my first new wave band doing like Boys Don't Cry at half speed. And so they killed us in the like 89 Battle of the Bands. Um, and then like three years later or five years later, I saw them. I'm like, that's those guys from that metal band. <laughs> Um, and they certainly <laughs> mellowed out in a five-year period. It really did, you know. But yeah. you know, so that's—I don't blame them. A lot of metal people had to navigate grunge really quickly around that yeah. time period. And you know, uh, Kirk Douglas, our friend and, and and schoolmate, you know, was in an early version of of my favorite, and then he ended up forming um, the shoegaze band in the '90s called Bincy Poplar, and then about 10 years ago, joined the Roots. So he's had a really wild uh, arc in, in his career. So there were a lot of creative people at that high school. So I was really lucky to be able to form most of the band in high school and then find Todd and, and, and Kurt Brando at, at Stony Brook. So it really always felt like an extension of a kind of teenage clique. You know, it felt much more like a gang of friends than um, I think a band that you might form with a lot of ads and, you know, Craigslist or a lot of, you know, auditions in, in some rehearsal space in, uh, in Bushwick, which, you know, we had to do that eventually during the secret history. But so there was a different energy to that. And Andrea and I, uh, you know, were a kind of strange codependent, uh, couple, like, I don't know, uh, Ray and Kylo Ren. I'm not sure. Something. Yeah. So we had that 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 bond that you know gave us a certain power. I think that you know you see, you see. I'm not comparing this to Fleetwood Mac, but there is a, a there's a certain power, emotional power that comes from doing this sort of thing with someone that you really love and care about. But there's also a great degree of stress and peril uh, built into that. So there was a lot of things that made this band feel like more than just a band in those early days. It really felt like a in an, an escape plan, um, a gang. It felt like a lot of things. Yeah. And so the band did disband in 2005 and reformed about nine years after that. Why'd the band break up? And then what precipitated reforming the band? Why did it feel right uh, to you to, you know, 
revive my favorite. It was not a it was not a convenient time to break up in two thousand five. You know, I see all these sort of Instagram accounts now about the indie sleaze period and the yeah. TV in the bathroom documentary. Yeah. You know what I mean? And certainly, you know, we had we had a great run from from two thousand to two thousand five. But indie music only kept getting more popular, probably up until yeah. twenty twelve or something. Let's say you know, so it wasn't an ideal time to to break up at the sort of height of our of our popularity we were we had been to europe like five years in a row and um had done had done a few things um but as i sort of um uh foreshadowed a few moments ago um when you have you know when you're in a relationship in a group um you know, Andrew and I weren't together for the last almost five years of the group, but it was still very difficult yeah. to do it, to, to write these songs, to sing these songs. And I think eventually she just felt like there was going to be no way for her to change her life without leaving the group. So that was pretty much her decision. I did not really want my favorite to end. Um, and, you know, we were halfway through a, a third record and I was really excited about it. So forming The Secret History, you know, three years, two, three years later, it was... A, took a while to get a band together, even though we were only really adding one or two parts. Um, and then, you know, we did that from like 08 to, to, thir- to 2013. And, and after that, I just felt like I needed to get back to a, a sort of really um, personal place with the music. Um, so my favorite felt like a world and a, and a story that I had I had sort of left behind and I felt like about 10 years later I was ready to get back to it. Plus at that point it was just really me and, and Kurt Brando from the secret history. And even though Kurt played, I don't know, Hammond organ and Rhodes electric piano and Moog's in the secret history, I knew from having known him for a long time that his real love was, was electronic music, was ambient music, was experimental music. And I thought, you know, me and him could probably, figure out a new language for my favorite together slowly without actually having to put together a band or play shows, all the stuff I wasn't sure I was ready to do. Um, and a lot, and Darren and Todd from The Secret History, after the end of that band, it seemed like they were sort of burnt out and needed a break. So if I was going to go and do this sort of electronic, mostly electronic at that time project with just me and Kurt, um, I felt like I, I, I wanted to go back uh, to my favorite and sort of make sense of some of, of those stories and, and, and revisit them as opposed to starting a new thing. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. And, you know, you could definitely hear the sonic differences listening to this new EP compared to the earlier My Favorite stuff. But I'm I'm curious to hear your perspective on how you would compare this era of the project to prior ones what's different for you and what do you think has kind of stayed the same or remained consistent from the first era yeah i mean the main consistency is me as a songwriter um both music and lyrics i wrote you know about 90 percent of those songs i mean i was lucky to have amazing bandmates that really fleshed them out and added great parts but um you know, I, w- I, w- I was writing songs the whole time. The, you know, the first era of my favorite, you're hearing us grow up, you know, from the age of 19 yeah. to 30, essentially, you know. So, you know, our first single is this noisy, uh, 
you know, noise pop song, Go Kid Go, that we did with Kramer, a producer we really liked who would produce Galaxy 500 and King Missile and a bunch yeah, of, wow. of other stuff, you know. So we start off with this noisiest um, power pop song ever. And then our second single is a, a kind of disco dream disco song about AIDS. And then our third thing. So we're just zigzagging all over the place as I'm trying to figure out you know, what I want to do. And the nineties were a tricky time to do it. All I knew is that I didn't want to do what other people were doing or what people expected me to do. So you're hearing us kind of change and grow and experiment. You know, there's some possibly, you know, um, some blue beat stuff that maybe, you know, I, I wouldn't do now, but I loved, you know, I loved dub and reggae and I, I, you know, dabbled with that. And then by the time the Zero Zeros came out and those three EPs that we combined into the second record, I think I had a pretty strong sense of, of what I wanted to do. And um, I think at that point we had sort of found our uh, our kind of apex sound. Returning to it now, you know, I guess I, I sort of used Roxy Music as a kind of template in my mind when yeah, I, I, when I came, totally when I came that, back yeah. to it. I was like, okay, so Roxy had this period as a wild, experimental pop band lurching from sound to sound, um, growing up together. And I sort of thought of sort of, you know, the first Roxy Music record through to, I don't know, Siren or something like that as as sort of that early period. And then returning to my favorite now, I'm we're in this sort of you know, Avalon period where um, there's a certain weariness and a certain uh, sophistication that comes from being a middle-aged uh, bohemian um, and, uh, and a certain um, richness to it. But there's also a kind of, I think, a haunted quality, um, a kind of uh, fallacy of the richness of the music. And that's part of what I'm trying to get at, you know, is 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 the simulations of our of, of our time the the layers of references and uh, layers of literal reverb and of sort of conceptual reverb it creates yeah. a real sense of of kind of splendor but there's something you know there's something haunted there's something wounded underneath all that um, so that's really what I wanted to get at with the return of my favorite was this thing that superficially seems like it's sort of advanced in this kind of glossy way but is still really liminal and really taking stock of all the sort of haunts and harms um, because I'm still doing that I'm still healing and figuring myself out and I think I've got some company in that yeah and digging into this EP in particular I mean I like how on Princess Diana awaiting ambulance you know, there's a reference to a big cultural event that happened in 1997 in the 90s, kind of in the height of my favorite uh, doing their thing. And, you know, you kind of also incorporate your own experience into it. You relate it to yourself, your longing for the past, the passage of time. So it was definitely like probably my favorite song on the EP. So I was interested to hear, you know, tell us a little bit about that song. Uh, what inspired it lyrically in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think I have sort of my own wacky theology that, you know, maybe it's a product of, of having grown up as a Sicilian Catholic kid, but I have my own sort of... Oh, me too. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I'm, I'm only a quarter Sicilian, but uh, 
you know, do it. mainland the that, rest that, of the way. That will screw you up enough, just in that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm also super Italian and was raised Catholic. So we have that in common. So I think I, I think I have this, uh, this pantheon of saints and 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 sort of figures that that kind of become um, iconic to me, more as kind of representatives of certain feelings and certain kinds of of loss, as opposed to, you know, me really, you know, do I care about the British aristocracy? I mean, not really. Do I think it's a good thing? No. Do I think Diana is this amazing? person i'm gonna say no though i may say secretly but the 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 point is that i remember her passing um yeah and i and i and i remember just this moment where it seemed okay very briefly to sort of just kind of fall apart um and then and then not then we weren't allowed to do that again so the, the the song is really very not very much about her or very much about her death, but a, a, of a kind of memory, a sense memory of the 90s yeah. and of of wanting to kind of be able to go back and, and, and yeah. be vulnerable. But it, and it's also a good deal about, um, you know, I think Oscar Wilde said, each man kills the thing he loves in, in the, this poem, The Ballad of Reading Jail. So when I think about the first era of my favorite and I think about Andrea and I think about our relationship, I think part of it is, is, is about, in that song, about trying to be accountable for the things that we, the things that we love, but also kind of uh, the things that we uh, destroy. And I feel like you reflect on the passage of time, you know, throughout the CP, kind of longing for the past. I feel like I hear it on Blues for Planet X and Second Empire as well. Tell us a little bit about those tracks. Yeah, I mean, I think when you, you know, restart a project, um, you have a few different routes to go. And I did not want to go the route of reforming to play, you know, a handful of pop fests and and play our hits. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm not calling out any of my friends or, or peers that are doing that. You might find me there next year. Who the hell, hell knows, you know. But my, my interest has never been in playing in a band for the kind of fun or sociality of it um if i was going to restart my favorite i had to acknowledge that it is a new era and i had to try to be in somewhat in dialogue with what i had done in the past and in and to acknowledge the fact that we're older and, and what does that mean you know i don't want to do some sort of teenage kabuki theater at my age i don't i'm not interested in doing that so i in talking about the past i think it, it was my way of acknowledging you know, what has changed and, and what hasn't, um, instead of just pretending that you can just start and stop things as if time doesn't matter. Time does matter and, and change really matters. So, um, I think I probably went even further than I needed to in, in, in making sure that this version of my favorite is, is different, disorientingly different. Totally. I mean, the sound is different (laughs) for sure. For sure. It's, it sounds more beat driven to me, more inspired by kind of like danceable, you know, layers and textures and things like that. And, and listen, part of that is, you know, is not, is not having our awesome drummer, Todd Karasik. And, and then if we're not going to do that, then I might as well do what Kurt and I always wanted to do partially, which was, you know, play of beats and play of drum machines and, and be able to do some of that stuff that I always loved, but just, you couldn't really do 
that much with a live drummer. So that was another thing that I was excited to do was kind of dig into electronic music because we would sometimes get, you know, described as a synth pop band. And that was just because, you know, the way I dressed or whatever. You know, I mean, we did have some aspects of that, but, you know, not really. So um, this is sort of the chance to do that. How about creating this alternate version of Second Empire for the EP? It was a song that you originally released in 2014 why'd you decide to rearrange that track and ultimately release this new version so i had had promised um a a label in england a secret history song for a single and then um lisa ronson took a job in in london and was sort of within a month or two she was gone and there was going to be no new song for this label so i was like hey kurt don't we have some kind of half conceived of um kind of ambient dreamy track um that we can give them so we had no plan of of resurrecting my favorite that early it was sort of like we owe them something and this is is what we have and you know i think the label is like is this my favorite? I was like, sure. You know, it, it's me singing and there's, and there's synthesizers, you know, it's like that, that Marky Smith quote, you know, it's me and your grandma on bongos is the fall, you know, <laughs> me and a rolling string pad is my favorite. So <laughs> that's hilarious. And there are bongos. Those, those on- kind of stories are always so funny to me that, so that's really the crux of how this, project was resurrected was kind of a time crunch yeah when Kurt and I were doing it we were thinking like is this going to be my favorite are are the rest of the members who aren't doing gonna kill us if we do it as my favorite you know they weren't thrilled about it um but they didn't you know but they said they needed a break and I don't and I think they thought I was going to go mourn but you know that's not you know artists don't tend to do that you know yeah so, um, you know, we had discussed doing that, that song as my favorite, but we basically had to f- finish it in a rush and make a decision in like three weeks. And, and thus, there was this my favorite single in 2014, long before we were ready to do it. Um, so, but it still was one of the, you know, the song was written as a kind of manifesto for returning to my favorite, the idea of a second empire of the band. So it was a really important song for us. And it was a song that I, I didn't, want to exist only in this really rushed half-picked format so we ended up able to add guitars to it which there were not on the second half of the song and to really get to remix it and we were working with a great producer for the cp so um it was a it was a, a chance to 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 revisit it and calling it second arrangement is a subtle nod to it unreleased steely dan tracks so i thought you know <laughs> i can have very cool out of that how about um <clears throat> releasing this ep as part of a three-part series of eps why split this into three eps instead of maybe releasing a full record and do you have a a concept behind you know the fact that you're doing three EPs as kind of a trilogy like that. Well, you know, it, it may have ended up being a record if COVID didn't happen. It got really hard to get together, but at the same time, you know, we released EPs in zero 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 one and zero two that basically kind of took the band to to a next level. So in a way, history was repeating itself. Itself. So once I realized that that was what's going to happen, you know, people are going to think, "Is this like a marketing ploy? Let's do three EPs essentially twenty years after the first three. But it, 
it really wasn't. The other thing is just the reality. It's very hard for us to make music quickly while trying to, you know, take care of ourselves and pay our bills and, you know, take care of our kids that Kurt has and I don't. But, you know, we, we, there's, <laughs> yeah. it, it's harder at this stage in life um, to do this, particularly the way that, that, that I, that I want to do it, which is to give everything into it, put everything into it. So we work notoriously slowly. And so that is also part of the motivation of doing the EPs. But I do think now I the way that the songs are, are sort of breaking up as I kind of map it out, I do think there's going to be some cool kind of shifts in, in feel from part one to part two to part three. And it also gives us time to bring in some more special guests that I'm really excited about. Um, so... Yeah, but it's it's really necessity as much as invention, to be honest with you. And you mentioned something, and I wanted to build off of that and hear about the experience specifically. But we were kind of segueing into something else, so I kept it in the back of my head. That you worked with Mark Kramer on your first ever single as my favorite. And just, you know, from reading Dean Warham's memoir, I know Kramer was kind of an interesting uh, character. Totally. So I was curious as a young band, as a young person, maybe like a 19 or 20 year old yep. working with a guy like Kramer. What, what do you remember about that? And what was that like? It's completely insane because, you know, we're like, you know, a bunch of really shy kids ranging in kids, age from yeah, like sure. 19 to 22, you know, and I've got my little cardigan on, you know, I'm, I'm in my Morrissey phase and walk into the studio and like, it's just a, it's just a, a, a miasma of weed. And, uh, and then his <laughs> totally naked Swedish girlfriend is just like sprawled out over the mixing board. And I'm just sort of like, welcome to rock and roll, I guess, you know, so, um, and he did not work. He would have his assistant do everything. And then he would come in at the last moment and just press four buttons and be like the magic. And I was trying not to, I mean, listen, he's a, ta- he was a talented guy and he did make that first single, uh, go could go back to absolute beginners again, really dreamy and intense and rich as a guitar record in a way that we never accomplished again but um you know he was just barely talking to us and barely uh his eyes would sort of just flutter shut um and then we went to do (laughs) but listen the, the single came out great you know it got played on the john peel show and it got played on college radio and you know, we ended up re-recording those songs for the first record, and they were not as good. And then when th- that first record got reissued, I put the original Kramer versions back on because they're just better, you know. But we went to do our second single, The Informers, and Kramer heard it, and he's like, I'm not mi- mixing this. What's that synthesizer? He's like, I, I left that trash behind <laughs> in the 80s. I'm not mixing it. I'm like, well, I mean, this is the whole song. It's, like a, it's a drum machine, a synthesizer, you know. And he just walks out. And he leaves his he leaves his engineer to mix it. So the engineer was this nice guy, you know, and he just mixed it. But Kramer was like, just literally walked out of the studio if I refused to take the synthesizer off. And I was just like, no, I'm not doing that, Mark. Man, I'm just we, you just gotta mix it. And he wouldn't, and thus that ended our that ended our run with Kramer after a single and a half. That, but that, that's really impressive to me that you you kind of had that resolve already and belief in your vision and music as a a young kid at 19 years old i think if that was me he slowed us down because uh, we would have worked yeah. we would have worked 
We would have worked faster if we just let Kramer do what he wanted to do to our music, and it would have been a, a, a more psychedelic, shoegazy sort of sound. But um, I, at that point, you know, and by the time the second single, um, I, I had, you know, sort of figured out a little bit of what I wanted to do, and I did not want to carry the torch for rock music forwards. I really wanted, I wanted to bury, bury it and create this sort of... Um, multifaceted music for outsiders or whatever you wanted to call it and i did not want to be beholden to the 60s or the uh, anything and uh so yeah I, I wasn't my bandmates were a little like are you sure you're gonna you're gonna just let kramer leave and i was like yeah we're, that's what we're gonna do wow why do you think you felt so strongly about that at that time um you know i i'm not sure i think I think that mo a lot of the records that I, that really meant something to me that they, yeah. they were extremely self possessed in in what they were doing, and I, I think I wanted to follow to follow suit. You know, I, I did not want uh, I did not want to compromise um, creatively, which is you know yeah unusual for a twenty two twenty three year old person. But I'd been thinking about this stuff for a long time. You know, it just scheming away in my room before I could play a chord. So. Um, I, I, I sort of had my vision was in far in advance of of what we had actually accomplished, but I did feel as though um, that I knew what I wanted to do. Yeah, I did. That's amazing. So, what's next for my favorite as far as this second and third EP? Do you see the second one coming out sometime next year? Do you plan on playing any any shows? I, I really do. So you know, we, we we're we're gonna be st we're gonna start rehearsing um, next month with a a new female singer who is gonna be on parts of EP two and on a lot of EP three. Um, she's she's someone who has a has had a, a really interesting solo career of her own, and I'm just fortunate that she was a my favorite fan. And uh, so I'm not gonna get into details about that until it actually all comes together but <laughs> yeah. i'm starting to feel optimistic that we could actually play some shows and and part of that is i wanted to play shows you know i wanted to have a live sax player i really wanted the the shows to to be kind of immersive and and dreamy and 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 feel different than than just a noisy uh, rock show i didn't want them to feel like a lesser version of what we did. So I think I'm finally getting the right people together. So I hope, yeah, I hope at the end of this year or next year, we'll be able to play some shows and, and the EP will should come out next year. I mean, if it doesn't, if it wasn't for vinyl, things could come out a lot quicker. I mean, the, the yeah, oh vinyl, my gosh. But like a six month delay in, in, in that, it really pushed things back. You know, the EP one was done in February and was supposed to come out in August and really vinyl didn't show up until, until late September. So really slowed us down can't wait for the next one this first ep is excellent and there is a vinyl because i'm definitely gonna get that because i will incorporate it into my dj sets <laughs> i'm gonna have one sent, i'm gonna have one sent, sent to you special to you so don't you oh amazing i'm gonna play that immediately at my next dj gig as soon as i have it yeah and it and it, and it, and it sounds great it's definitely the best sounding piece of vinyl it was mastered by Heba Kadri who I don't know if we'll be able to work with her again she's she's doing so much amazing work she mixed the most recent Bjork album but she's an immensely talented person so the record does sound great so yeah EPs two and three there's there's some crazy stuff on them like eight minute sort of 90s style four on the floor bass drum techno on one song and then there's there's a lot of different stuff like it's um 
if you, I wouldn't even necessarily even settle into what we did in EP one. I mean, it's going to be similar, but I, I have a few more surprises, and I would really love to play live. I really would, and I would love to get back to to our fans in in, in Sweden and and in and in the UK. That would be great, and in I love just get out of the house would be nice. Last question before we move on to the record part, and you know, I know you've been asked about the band's success in Sweden a lot, so I, I kind of don't want to really focus on like what you what you've been asked before, which is how and why it happened. But I am always curious about bands that have success or a fan base abroad. What was that experience like when you first went to a country like Sweden? You're not from Sweden, obviously, and you get there and you realize, wow, there's people here on the other different part, completely different part of the world. And my music is really resonating with them. And I've never been here before. Take me back to that uh, first experience being there, what you were feeling and what, what that was like for you. Yeah, I mean, the Swedish fans really saved the band. I mean, we spent like a year in the studio doing Love at Absolute Zero and maxed out our credit cards. We had a bad plan. You know, I wanted to make this really glossy anti-90s record, but, you know, as if we were on a major label as sort of (laughs) concept, but we weren't on one and we had no money. So what were we doing? So after the end of that record, my bandmates were like, oh, my God, I can't deal with you anymore. So it was was hit or miss whether we would go on, you know. Um, so when we so when the record started really getting played a lot and people were flying us over to Sweden, it was really it was the jolt we needed to to kind of restore some some faith in ourselves. And so I, I really owe those owe, owe those fans enormous enormous um, gratitude because they were taking us seriously in a way that other people were only doing sporadically, and there was just an enormous amount of passion and an enormous amount of energy in those shows. And, um, so it, it was really inspiring, you know, I mean, and it was a, it was an okay place to be popular. Everyone spoke English. People were super polite, you know, aside from the time that they made me sleep in a drawer. Um, I found it, whole, <laughs> <laughs> it was like a pullout bed, but it was literally a drawer, yeah. you know? And, and, and when they started pushing it closed, I was like, Hey, no, 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 Serati no vibes, open, you know? buddy. just leave it open there. You know, I'm not, yeah. not going to look at these people. Um, it was an amazing experience. It really was. And again, and I've gotten into the fact that they had, you know, national radio. So it was easy to get an entire country yeah. to hear you and, you know, national music press. And it was similar to the way things would happen, I think, to bands in, in England in the 80s where, yeah. you know, all you would need to do is be on John Peel and be on the cover of the NME. And all of a sudden, it didn't matter whether you had two singles out, you know. So that and that was a very difficult thing to replicate in the States because you'd be you know, 500 college radio stations and, you know, yeah. you'd be played by 50 and you thought that was amazing. But, it you know, it, it was hard to translate that. That. So we got really fortunate, and they, they really saved the band. I don't know if we would have done those EPs, and I don't know if we would have made it to the New York scene that we were able to thrive in because we needed a kind of – we need to get from 99 to like 01, you know, 02, and, and, they, and they helped us get there, you know, and then, then New York City became a – really kind of took us – to their heart in a way they did not in the 90s. Do you remember your first show playing abroad or early shows and what the reception was like and what the feeling was like? Yeah, well, I remember going to Gothenburg 
you know, and I assumed, you know, all I knew about Sweden was Stockholm, you know, so, uh, so but Gothenburg was our sort of spiritual home capital, all the writers and all the people there. So when we got there and it was just like, you know, crowds in New York would often cross their arms and nod or sort of sigh and just sort of, you know, it was a very 90s Gen X crowd where maybe they liked you, but no one was telling you that, you know. So we get there and it's just sweaty people leaping on top of each other and yelling and chanting the lyrics back at me and you know it, it just had this riotous quality uh, of like you know the pistols at manchester you know wow and i was not this is not something that happened in the states at all you know yeah. so i was just sort of like okay it, i thought i put some of this stuff in the music and I, maybe i didn't make it easy to find but these these guys have found it and it's an exciting feeling you know it's i mean you know it's a weird place to be in as a band when you've accomplished more than 95% of the bands that were ever created, but it's only the top two or 3% that get to do this in a way that feels like a career or where you're quote unquote famous. So I'm just another obscure dude with a band that some people like and most people don't know exists. But I do feel very blessed to have those experiences of people really, you know, telling you that the music mattered and, and there's this you know beautiful thing when you play live music and everyone is just in this moment together and uh, you know I'm real grateful for for having a chance to do that and that happened really first in, and most in Sweden and then in the last few years in New York thank God. All right, so now we're gonna play some songs from the new EP "Tender Is the Night Shift" Part One. We're gonna play a track we talked about, Princess Diana awaiting. Ambulance and Blues for Planet X. That dream I told you about, falling into darkness, it's not falling, it's being dropped. There's a light at the end of the tunnel and it is death. I know that you won't cry my name with your last breath You let it go, let it go As though it's a thousand lifetimes ago Dancing through doorways to music I'll never know Oh Diana Diana, the kids have forsaken us. Oh, Diana, oh, Diana, the kids do what the kids must. They stay gold while we rust. They stay gold while we rot. They stay gold while we Trying to leave the 90s behind me But they keep dragging me back Cause I hear the chatter of angels When I don't take my Prozac 
Oh 
just heard two tracks from the new my favorite ep tender is the night shift part one we heard princess diana awaiting ambulance and blues for planet x you can get a copy of that ep on vinyl via where it's at is where you are and that is w-i-a-i-w-y-a.com or wiaiwya.bandcamp.com, also available via digital download via myfavorite.bandcamp.com. And of course, it's on all streaming platforms. All right. So now we'll talk about the records you picked. Your daunting record the songs collection. you picked. Yeah. Impressive. Starting off with Five Years by David Bowie. Tell me a little bit about why you picked that. You know, I used to do um, I used to do all these zine interviews in the late '90s. You know, you would just go out on a sidewalk after a show. You know, or even sometimes you could write a letter back and forth. You know, even in the early days of the internet, you were still checking the PO box a lot. You know, and I remember, I remember one uh, zine writer asking me to describe, you know, this my favorite sound. And you know, in those days, I would just say a bunch of nonsense off the top of my, top of my head. So at one time I said crisis pop and the, the journalist was like, <laughs> just like, what the hell does that mean? You know? And I, I didn't, I didn't know really. I just was being a wise guy, but in the years, uh, shortly after, and in the years after, I think I, I did come to understand that. And I think I've, I think I've always been drawn to music that seemed, uh, somewhat occupied, um, by the same terrors, Occasionally joys, but mostly terrors, um, as I was as a person. So, I think five years is the song that really struck me as sort of like the uh, the stairway to heaven of crisis pop. You know, it's this immense sense of, of of anxiety and longing and desperation in it. Even though it's you know kind of just a bit of science fiction pulp, but there's so much you know there's so much feeling in it. This uh, uneasy desperation and and with time and belonging, you know, and 
if my favorite's about anything, I think it's about that. It's about that relationship with time and with wanting to be a part of something. So all of Ziggy Stardust is sort of about that, this idea of being an alien and sort of really time running out. I related to those two things um, immensely as a kid. And, you know, the idea that he's doing this kabuki theater, but it's still just so real. It's just so emotional. So, yeah, man, David is like a an important guy. He's an important guy. To me. A brain hurt like a warehouse. It had no room to spare. I had to cram so many things to store. Everything in there. And all the fat, skinny people. And all the tall, short people. And all the nobody people. Next. Street Street Hassle by Lou Reed. Yeah, so you know, part part of going back to my favorite now um, was the idea that in, in the Secret History, I started to write sort of uh, story songs or narrative songs or character-driven songs. And even though underneath it all, I'm always trying to say something, usually about about my life. But they were more uh, layered as sort of character and story songs. And, and when I went back to do my favorite songs, I, I really wanted to get back into the more kind of ambiguous, haunted, like I mentioned before, liminal style of writing, which meant to being a bit more vulnerable, you know? And, and so I would, I, so Lou was like always my go-to for being vulnerable, for being willing to expose some, some, some ugly stuff, you know, Street Hassle, Coney Island Baby. You know, these were songs where it was like the bravery of just saying the stuff out loud was remarkable. And, and, and particularly on Dean's Seventh Dream, which is sort of a song about a lot of rough stuff that happened to me as a kid, I really, I turned to Lou. I was like, okay, you know, Lou can do it. He's a kid from Long Island <laughs> and he can, and he, he put himself out there and yeah. I'm going to do the same thing. So um, that's why I chose that. You know, I don't have an enormous amount melodically in common with Lou Reed, but since since I was a teenager in the Velvet Underground, he's always been a person that I, I kind of turned to when I, I kind of needed... Um, a push. Thieves Like Us by New Order is next. So in continuing along, sort of like returning to my favorite and what, you know, what I was trying to do, you know, when I think about New Order, I think about, and similar to Lou Reed, Lou's songs are a lot about surviving. And then when I think about New Order, I'm like, how did they even go on after losing Ian Curtis and after the end of Joy Division? Like how many bands would have been able to pick up the pieces after that, you know, as opposed to just sort of packing it in. So, so when I think about New Order, I think about how important it was for them to add this sort of element of euphoria, of ecstasy into the music, you know, and of beauty. So when, when I think about uh, Thieves Like Us, it's just such a beautifully constructed song. There's like there's a lot of, of joy in the way it works together. And when I think about Joy Division, I mostly think about the sound of things like uh, falling apart. And when I think about New Order, I think about putting things together, you know. And I also think about yeah. about ecstasy. I mean, the drugs at the hacienda, sure, but but the sense, the sense of, of joy. I mean, no yeah. one no one had us sprinting onto the dance floor um, in the '90s and the aughts as much as, as New Order. So, um, you know, I, I, so when I went back to my favorite now, I, I 
I wanted to tell myself to remember to put the, you know, put the ecstasy and put the beauty and put the building, the making into it, the way that that new order is. Don't just concentrate on, on the darkness. Next, love is stronger than pride. The house mix, house mixes by Sade. So really, I, I saw that you had a bunch of these, like yes, these white label bootleg vinyl from the '90s. You know, so I used to love to get those. You know, those sorts of dance. I worked at a record store in the '90s, and um, and I was into stuff like yeah. Frankie Knuckles and Mr. Fingers and. Uh, 808 state and i listened to ktu yeah. and i was really into dance music i mean it's not something that many of my band made shared so it it only popped in um you know from time to time but and i saw you had that i was like well i want to hear a couple seconds of that so i, I tried to track down some of it on online and the other thing is that I've, i just have always loved sade and when i think about how weird it was for me as a 17 year old to play like you know the Sex Pistols on my cassette player, and then pop in <laughs> Sade, and for it to feel like feel like natural to me, like yeah. this is all the same to me, you know, like that's that's peculiar. But that, that you know, the late '80s were like that in a way. You know, there was a lot of different sounds that could be played in the same sort of context, and I just love Sade. I, I love the sound of it. I love the the richness of it and her voice and trying to channel little bits of that into songs like second empire and uh, but but I, I love that you got you know got those that classic like illegal beat bootleg vinyl yes, i would definitely spin that definitely something i'm spinning during my dj sets recently i love sade and this is a good one this <laughs> bootleg house mixes white label vinyl excellent Next, Prefab Sprout, Desire As. Definitely a band that I could see as an influence on your work, for sure. What's funny is that in the early years of my favorite, every now and then someone would be like, so you guys are into Prefab Sprout? And I'd be like, no, I've never heard that band. But I think it was just because, just because we had a male and female singer, you know, and I cared about lyrics. But after like the 10th time someone told me, I was like, all right, I'm going to go buy some yeah. Prefab Sprout records. And then in the last few years of the band and ever since, they became one of my all-time all time faves. Um, absolutely. And, and before we started this EP series, I was listening to a lot of records produced by people like Trevor Horn and Thomas Dolby, of which this Prefab Sprout record is. And just thinking about, again, that sort of dense digital um, atmosphere and iciness and almost luxuriousness of these records, that's really disorienting and and really unique, you know? It's like you can reduce the 80s to sort of like a cliche. And you hear a lot of Vaporwave, and some of it I like, where it's yeah. just sort of that bass drum and then the splash snare and then the, the bass sequence. And you can sort of, you know, reduce the 80s to this sort of relatively thin uh, idea. But if you really get into records like 
this prefab sprout record or Kate Bush or Tears for Fears, you're, you're getting this remarkable symphony of, of, of ideas and sounds and textures. And I really wanted to try to capture that more than I wanted to do the sort of by the numbers sort of synth pop dark wave thing. Um, I, I think there's there's a lot more to that music, and I think this song Desiraz is a perfect example. It does not sound like rock or pop or dance. It's it's just this this. It's like a Noel Coward working with Dr. Frankenstein. You know, it's it's <laughs> it's amazing. It's a beautiful song for sure. It's live, right? That's Dolby. He's Dr. Frankenstein. You only see desire as a self-figured creature who changes her mind Desire is a self-figured creature who changes her mind It's perfect as it stands Next, I Wish You Heaven by Prince yeah, man, I mean, I, when I was going back to do these EPs, I was just thinking, like, wow. You know, like, if you go through these Prince records from the 80s, and it's just sort of like... The the, the bonus tracks on Purple Rain is an, an entire great record unto itself. They're just songs stuck all over these, these records, these little songs that are really beautiful and interesting and, and super self-possessed, like, just an enormous amount of confidence in what he was doing. And, and so that, that was a really an inspiration for me is just to, to you know, trust your instincts and to believe in change. And, and Prince did that in his, in his own way as much as, as Bowie did, maybe even more. And he's on David's level. I mean, he's just an amazing artist. And this song is just like a little song on stuck on the backside of, I can't remember what record, Parade, Love Sexy, one yeah. of those. Um, and it, it's, it's just a great little song. Last but not least, 5050 Clown by Cocteau Twins. Yeah, I remember when this record came out. I was, I, I was like junior or senior year of high school, 1990, and um, and it just blew me away because I was like, this is soul music. Like the way the vocal's moving, the way that this is like a, this is a soul song. And it's also a million other things in terms of texture and sound. And But it is at its core a soul song about a voice trying to tell you something in the way it moves and what it's yearning for. And I thought, you know, no matter what you do with your influences, you know, whatever sounds and textures and synths, whatever you stick on these songs, you know, try not to lose, lose, lose touch with that, that, that aspect of just, you know, that pure longing that yearning you know i mean no one's going to sing like elizabeth fraser but you know the, the record just blew me away so i try i, I try to, to touch on some of that in in the textures of certain songs and but it just it's, it's a remarkable record it's one of my all all-time favorites and uh, that song in particular just the runs the way she sings it you know it, it could be a stack single All right, Michael. Hey, 
was so great speaking with you today. What an awesome conversation we had. Everyone, Tender is the Night Shift Part 1 is out now. You can check it out on your streaming platform of choice. Or you can head to Bandcamp, myfavorite.bandcamp.com, and vinyl will be available soon. My favorite, hoping to play some gigs in the next year, so definitely follow them on Instagram. Your handle is my favorite, I believe, at my favorite. On Instagram, it's at Michael Grace Jr., and on Twitter and Facebook, it's my favorite forever. Um, so yeah, find find me on Instagram and us on the other platforms. Um, appreciate being on with you today. Some real great questions, and uh, look forward to seeing you down the line at one of these shows, either ours or something that, something that you're doing. Can't wait to see my favorite play live. All right, man. Thank you. We're gonna finish off today's episode with one last song from Tender Is the Night Shift. This is called Second Empire.